0: Our scripture today is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so a few years ago, okay, Kate, you can just put that photo up right away because it's cute. A few years ago, some animal behavior researchers published a study on kangaroo island kangaroos. They're a subspecies of western gray kangaroos. Not that you cared about that, but they also tested a small number of eastern gray and red kangaroos. They wanted to figure out if non-domesticated animals would look to humans for help when they encounter a problem. So here's the, here's the intro to their 2020 study explaining what they did from the journal Biology Letters. Domestication is generally assumed to have resulted in enhanced communication abilities between non-primate mammals and humans, although the number of species studied is very limited. Basically, they're saying, when you have an animal in captivity, that sort of it, they start to develop this skill of communicating with you sort of like your pet right we we kind of understand that but most of the most, most of the studies that have been done are on you know like pets dogs cats that sort of thing in species without hands po- for pointing gazing at humans when dealing with inaccessible food during an unsolvable task in particular gaze alternations between a human and the unsolvable task, which are considered forms of showing, are often interpreted as attempts at referential, intentional communication. We report that kangaroos, marsupial mammals that have never been domesticated, actively gazed at an experimenter during an unsolvable problem task 10 out of 11 kangaroos tested, thus challenging the notion that this behavior results from domestication. Nine of the ten kangaroos additionally solved gaze alternations between the unsolvable task and the experimenter. We propose that the potential occurrence of these behaviors displayed toward humans has been underestimated, owing to a narrow focus on domestic animals. Okay, so while the sample size of this research is extremely limited, I actually don't think the findings are unreasonable or surprising, at least in my view. So this is what happened in the experiment, if you want to show this next photo. OK. So what they'd do is they'd allow a non-domesticated kangaroo, like a wild kangaroo that they took in captivity, into a cage with a scientist who had placed some food underneath a plastic tub that had been screwed down onto a wooden board. So the kangaroos couldn't get at the food inside, but they knew it was in there. So what almost every kangaroo did in this situation was look at the food, and then they would look at the human back and forth and back and forth. Food, human, like, hey, help me. They would alternate their gaze in a way to communicate that they were asking for help with an unsolvable task. And so obviously, I love this because it's you know cute and adorable and it involves kangaroos. And I like to imagine them asking me for help. But I think there's, there's something related in this analogy today. So just keep that in mind. Where do you turn when you face something seemingly unsolvable, something beyond your capacity? Where do you turn or direct your referential, intentional communication? A type of communication that is direct and intentional referring that's referential we're referring to what you want or need so I like this picture of a kangaroo encountering its own limits it's not necessarily cognitive limits because they they seem to get that they need help right they're smart enough to understand this they get it but this picture of these beautiful animals quickly becoming aware of, of their own limitations I think and particularly the need of a form, a different form of intelligence, I think offers me a picture of my own helplessness. Maybe even how I feel when I try to access my own righteousness, you could say, or get at my own sense of cleanness or holiness, you could say, maybe even happiness or contentment and peace. They feel caged up in this frustrating plastic box, screwed down of my own sinful nature. And as much as I try, I fail and fail and fail again. I can't do it. In short, I need help. Maybe you do too. Perhaps you're painfully aware of your own limits or those of others, your own lack of virtue, your anger, your laziness, greed, lust, impatience, hatred, judgment, whatever it is that weighs you down. And that discourages you, makes you feel alone, maybe like a failure like you're too far gone, like you are deserving of shame. Maybe it's time for you and me to actively gaze up again, seeing our problems clearly, and recognizing that some of them are simply beyond our capacity to fix. We really do need help. So during this season of Epiphany, we're exploring the various ways God reveals himself. We are meditating on life in the kingdom of light. So we remember that darkness is simply the absence of light. And to overcome the darkness in our souls and in our relationships and in our communities, we have nowhere else to turn but to the source of light. Today we're going to look at the account of the baptism of Jesus and some of John the Baptist's early public ministry. Our primary focus for today is a line that I'm going to borrow from Thomas Merton, which is this. Humility is the surest sign of strength. Humility is the surest sign of strength. So today we'll see how the Spirit of God brings help, restoration, and revelation where there is humility. How Jesus exemplifies this, how John the Baptist does, how the crowd maybe does or doesn't how the religious leaders maybe do or don't. So keep your antenna aimed at humility. Do you even use antenna anymore? I don't know. That makes me sound old, I think. Let's look at Matthew 3. It says, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees Coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit, produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, So if you remember from our Advent study last month, John the Baptist is the son of a Levitical priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah, telling him that their prayers for a child had been answered. And later, after Elizabeth's relative, Mary visits her. John, who's still in Elizabeth's womb, leaps at the sound of Mary's voice. And then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies about the baby. And there's like a whole lot going on here. And I wanted to write a joke about kangaroos and pouches and something about the jumping in the womb. But it just seemed too weird. So I just left it alone. And there's a lot more they're like there's a lot more going on here there really is something about these first few chapters of the gospels where it's like whoa that was like 30 years in like a chapter or two right so it's hard to keep uh, keep uh, our minds wrapped around what's occurring but the whole point of this reminder is just to recall that john's whole life is bound together with jesus from his very conception to his death, he will forever be known as the one who prepared the way for the Messiah, who responded to the voice of Jesus. So today, we meet John, who is now grown up and living life on the margins. This was prophesied by his father, Zechariah, before his birth. In Luke 1, it says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, And you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace." And then it says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So the until he appeared publicly to Israel, that's where we're at right now in the story. That's what we're looking at today. And notice like the light and dark imagery that's used throughout here. John is revealing a sort of darkness that exists in Israel and in the Gentile world that They hadn't come to terms with yet, until he shines the light of God on it. Zechariah's prophecy puts it in describing the work of God. He came to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's God's work. So I don't know about your morning routine, but if you've ever had someone Just walk in and like flip on the light when you are like deep asleep. It's like, it's quite the experience. It is disorienting, maybe is a word. For a moment, you have like no idea what's going on, or at least I don't. I'm a pretty deep sleeper. Maybe that's it. And despite the fact that the room is instantly flooded with light and it reveals everything, it takes time for your eyes to adjust and for your brain to shift into I'm awake mode, right? Or I'm going to kill my roommate with his own lamp mode. Anyway, the point is that the light of God can be a little bit jarring, maybe like a lot bit jarring. It can take time to wrap our minds around what we're reading in the Gospels. And I think this is Israel's story. I think it's our story. I think it's the story of the disciples. So I would just say, allow yourself the freedom to be a little groggy today. Let this be more like a slow sunrise and less like a fire alarm. OK, so back to John. John, if I, I'm imagining John here now. John, what's the deal with the baptism stuff? Like why the baptism shtick? Why not be like the titan of the Torah or something like that? Why does any of this even matter, John? Is John basically like like the Walmart greeter for the Messiah? Is he someone we just acknowledge and then whisk by on our way to grab Doritos? Is he like the movie previews before the blockbuster film? The appetizer before the food, right? You get the idea. I would say no, he's not, but also maybe a little bit, yes. And what's remarkable is that John actually positions himself lower than even these things. Jesus later, but... Jesus, later, says this of John, in Matthew 11. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is or was to come. So John comes in the spirit of the prophet Elijah. Both Elijah in the Old Testament and John in the New point the way to the coming Messiah. When the Jewish leaders are baffled by him because people are beginning to say that John is like literally Elijah, almost like reincarnated in a different body, they, they take action. They start asking questions. And John clears things up a little bit, and it's recorded in John 1 briefly. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. It's a fair question. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. So right away, we just clear that up. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John makes it clear he isn't the Messiah, he isn't Elijah, and despite his denial of being the prophet, he certainly is a prophet. John is a man filled with the Spirit of God. And this is what defines him. Through John, God brings help and restoration and revelation and repentance where there is humility. John's humility is his surest sign of strength, his willingness to be a vessel for the power and presence of God. John also dramatically exposes the darkness of hypocrisy by shining the light of God on those who inquire of him with hard hearts. So my question is this, why are people attracted to this guy? John is out in the wilderness declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Like That sounds like the kind of person I'd avoid, if I'm being honest. Why does anyone take him seriously? People from Jerusalem and the surrounding area are making the trek into the wilderness so that they would repent? Why on earth would they want to do this? Well, I think it's because the Jewish people were looking for help. They were looking for a Messiah. And it turns out many in the region were kind of like those kangaroos running into their own limitations I mentioned earlier. They felt conviction when confronted with their ability to live rightly, and they were seeking a way to find peace. They hoped to resolve the inner turmoil of their own consciences and their sense of separation from God. And so enters John with a baptism of repentance. Now baptism was a Jewish practice of ritual cleansing, usually extended to Gentiles as they, meaning non-Jews, as they converted to Judaism. It was an act taken when someone had changed their mind about Yahweh and they were intending to worship and follow God. And so this was a new thing to have Jews also repenting? They're already Jews, what's going on? Being baptized? They were confessing their sins and being dunked in the Jordan River as an act signifying their decision to be made right with God, which is very odd. I would say the best thing I could envision is it's something like a revival. Matthew 3 again, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River." There's something interesting about the wilderness. and I kind of feel like it's like the, capital T, capital W, the wilderness. It's away from the hustle and bustle of daily life. It's harder to live. And while survival is more difficult, it can be a place of deep listening, a place of growth. If you find yourself or your soul, maybe, in a wilderness today or some other day, don't be ashamed. That is a perfectly good place to hear the words of the Spirit, to listen for the voice of God. It is a sometimes beautiful, sometimes terrifying place to have a change of heart, to confess your sins, to lay it down, so to speak. In the wilderness, optics kind of fade away. The rat race of your daily life slides into the background and your own spirit comes into focus. John was a man of the wilderness. He was also a man whose life was identified with repentance. Even his clothing is a picture of repentance. If you're familiar with the biblical concept of sackcloth and ashes, if you've ever heard those terms, That's kind of John's vibe, okay? Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary puts it this way it says, Sackcloth is cloth made of goats, black goats' hair, coarse, rough, thick, used for sacks, also worn by mourners as a sign of repentance. So it's kind of what he's wearing. So John's clothes were not for comfort. His whole life, even his clothing, communicated his ministry of repentance. He was a prophet. He was a man of God. He was a herald. He was an oracle. This is part of why people were drawn to him. But at the same time, he was something of an outcast, a person who was not following social norms. Either way, he was unlike what people were seeing in Israel, and I think that authenticity drew people to him. Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that from out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when corrupt leaders have their moral authority undercut by genuine righteousness they are confronted with their own hypocrisy and forced to decide between at least two paths humility which could involve public humiliation by admitting their faults or jeopardizing their own reputations or pride prioritizing their own preservation by marginalizing and condemning the ones who expose deeds in order to secure their reputations and positions. I might just say a little bit of that again. When corrupt leaders have their moral authority undercut by genuine righteousness, they are confronted with their own hypocrisy. So it seems clear to me that John has made peace with the potential consequences of his own words here. You brood of vipers and a whole lot of fire imagery He's telling the Jewish leaders that they are next in line for God's judgment and that their Abrahamic lineage lineage is not worth rocks. In fact, he literally says rocks are more valuable, potentially. So here's my question. Where would you have been on that day, in those days? Back in Jerusalem, in the crowd, hanging in the back with the religious leaders, up front, tears in your eyes, confessing your sin, ready to get baptized... Why or why not would you be in one spot or another? Is John too radical for you, too edgy? Maybe he's too much of a revolutionary. Maybe he's just too icky. Maybe his religious language of repentance and judgment is so loaded with with baggage for you, he sounds toxic. I mean, he doesn't exactly sound like the next Brene Brown here. So let's see how some people responded. We actually have a record of this. So we're gonna jump into Luke's account here because he offers more detail. Let's pick up the story in Luke 3. So they asked, what should we do then? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the fruit of consistent with repentance. It's generosity. It's social justice. It's honesty. It's contentment. If you've ever had concerns about what righteousness actually is, I think what you're actually worried about is self-righteousness. It's some skewed version of righteousness, but that's a different thing entirely, not of God. This is humility. This is light in the darkness. This is justice and mercy come to life. Prophets like John the Baptist or Elijah what they do is they intentionally press against the little or big ways we accommodate for sin in our lives. They become mouthpieces of God. They shine light on anything that isn't in accordance with God's will or character, on anything that isn't best for our lives or the community around us, anything that separates us from God. Lifeless things, or you could say, lightless things. Ah, but this is the miracle of the kingdom of light. Despite the incredible diversity of humanity, we all have to come to terms with how to deal with the spiritual darkness we see in ourselves and in the world. No one can escape these questions. John the Baptist. I made a weird list. I'm going to read it. John the Baptist. These are people that have to deal with this. John the Baptist. Herod, Moses, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Karl Marx, Gandhi, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., Joe Rogan, Taylor Swift, Kamala Harris, Patrick Mahomes, Yo-Yo Ma, Beyonce, every pope who has ever lived, and you and me, all of us, everyone has to deal with brokenness, has to deal with the, capital T, capital B, the brokenness, our brokenness, the world's brokenness. How do we get out of this mess? That feeling of utter hopelessness and helplessness is exactly what the wilderness is all about. It's not to be romanticized. We, aren't, we are stripped down bare to our humanity. And this is what John's baptism of repentance is about. It's a humble yes to God. Please wash me clean. It's a bathing ritual. Cleanse me and then clothe me. I need your help. And it clearly foreshadows a different baptism yet to come. So we see the problem. We see the good food under the plastic bin. How do we get at it? Where are we going to look? So we're going to jump back to Matthew 3. It says time, it's time for, it's, I'm going to coin something. It's Jesus time that's Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, Jordan, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Can you marvel at the humility of Jesus? I think John does. Jesus takes a road trip to seek out John. This is intentional. John tries to stop him from being baptized, but Jesus will not be deterred. And I don't know about you, but you'd think after all of this buildup from John about judgment and fire, that Jesus would sort of show up and it'd be like rock and roll. But it's not. It's really not very fantastic, at least in the way that I expect. I kind of expect a little more pizzazz. But Epiphany reminds us that God reveals himself in ways consistent with his nature and character. Jesus doesn't show up to baptize John and then the crowd and take over, like, I got a little secret for everyone. That guy over there, he's talking about, it. it's me, I'm the guy, and you're all in big trouble. No, Jesus, he affirms. His place in the story of salvation. Jesus will one day die for these very people he's looking at. And he participates as one of them in baptism. He's right there alongside the people. Jesus is both humble and strong. Jesus positions himself next to those who need help. He's literally being immersed, soaked in the experience of his brethren, identifying with them in their sin and cleansing. And then Jesus has this incredible moment with the Trinity and as the Holy Spirit essentially anoints him for his public ministry and his father claims him as his own, tells him that he loves him and tells him that he's proud of him. I mean, this is like the best stuff in life. And we're, we're actually not quite sure. I don't think, how public or private that little supernatural moment is. But whatever the case is, it happened there, and so it's informative for us. It at least shows us that Jesus is never alone, and it reminds us that neither are we. In Christ, we have received the same spirit as a gift, and he dwells in us. And two, it reminds us that there is always much more going on behind the scenes in sort of the spiritual realm than we're aware of. Things we often treat as out of sight, out of mind, secular, quote unquote, maybe simply aren't. Unlike us, Jesus didn't have an unsolvable problem. In fact, he moved to solve ours for us, to remove the separation between us and God created by sin. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus took on flesh. He became like one of us. This is the man that John the Baptist, he bet his whole life on. The one who is humble enough to be baptized by John. Jesus is making all things new. So all of these events are part of the plan of salvation that Jesus is embodying and enacting. We find ourselves in that plan today When we are baptized in the Spirit of God, we are made new. We are made clean forever. Because of Jesus' cleansing, death, and resurrection, his Spirit can take up residence within us. So the good news is that the Father sees the humility of Christ when he sees us. And the Spirit of God offers us that kind of strength, a different strength. So in the coming weeks, what I hope for us is that we would find help in the helper, that God, who is spirit, would be our strength. Find find the strength of God in laying down your strength, so to speak. Allow him to reveal himself in his word, in prayer, prayer, stillness of the early morning, in the quiet moments when you are telling him about your anxiety, in the humility or kindness of the people around you, perhaps even in this room, or the courage or boldness of someone like John the Baptist. So we aren't deceived that confidence in and of itself is what saves us or is the surest sign of strength pride charisma there's a lot of things you could list that maybe you would say wow that person is strong we know that humility is the surest sign of strength so when we encounter problems or make mistakes what we can do is we can use referential intentional communication we see the problems and then we redirect our gaze my prayer for us for me for my kids (laughs) for those that i know is that we would look to god for help he loves you as his own he has given you his very spirit And having been made new in Christ, he looks at you and is well pleased. We do this together. This is why we are a community. This is church, the church. And may we all, like John, find our lives bound together as Christ, as disciples, in wonder of his brilliance and gentleness and humor and holiness and creativity and mercy and love. May we find our strength in God's strength. I'm gonna close with, I didn't plan on this, but it was so pertinent, I think, that I think it's helpful. So um, the band, they were leading us in a song earlier, and I felt like verse two and the pre-chorus We're really on point, so we're going to close with that. I'm not going to sing it. I will read it. It goes like this. We will go from strength to strength. Even in the wilderness, you are turning tears to desert springs, leaving gardens in our footsteps. How blessed is the longing pilgrim whose heart is set on Zion's hill the one who look who knows there's no place better to bring our sorrows and be filled